Smile, wife of the Pulse nightclub terrorist. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapy Show on Renegade Radio. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Well, I got to tell you, I am really excited about this trial. It has just started. They are still in the phase of picking jurors, which is particularly difficult since the trial is taking place in a federal courthouse in Orlando, where on June 12, 2016, Omar Mateen killed 49 people in the Pulse nightclub and injured dozens more. This was considered, at the time, the deadliest mass shooting in recent U.S. history. Of course, since then, we've had more attacks uh, targeting churchgoers, lawmakers, concert attendees, and most recently, students inside Parkland High School. So the reason why, I mean, I have to admit it, and, and uh, just to remind you, one of my hats, one of the, my day job, as I like to say, uh, is as a forensic psychiatrist. So I am just super excited um, about what is going to happen, and I will be clear that I hope that um, the wife of Omar Mateen, whose name is Nora Solomon, I hope that she gets life. Uh, she can't get the death penalty in this particular because of what she's charged with and so on, but she can get life in prison without parole, life in federal prison yet. So um, that's what I think she deserves because I think she did know what her husband was doing. Um, she is charged with aiding and abetting the support of a foreign terrorist organization and second charge, obstruction of justice. So the first thing that the prosecutors have to prove is that Omar Batin was a terrorist and that he was responsible for all of these deaths and that he did it on behalf of ISIS. Now, I'm going to look, uh, read some of his uh, 911 calls, and there is no question but that he was doing it in support of ISIS and that he did it. So um, that part shouldn't be difficult. And um, because they have, the prosecutors have to show that first, that he was a terrorist responsible for these deaths, um, they are allowed to show some video or pictures and or photographs from inside the Pulse nightclub. Now, you know that when the jurors see the carnage, the blood, the bodies in the Pulse nightclub, 49, I mean, just think, 49 dead lying on the ground and dozens injured. I mean, it is going to be overwhelming. And emotionally, they are going to want somebody to pay. Now, um, Omar Mateen can't pay in this trial because he was killed in a shootout with police officers. So the only person who the jury can blame this carnage on is Noor Solomon. Now, so let me tell you uh, some of the things about this trial. And there's so, you know, right now they're still in the uh, jury selection phase, the voir dire. The, um, so far, it's the judge who has been asking the questions. Um, and 
there are so many things to ask about, and I'll give you some examples, but there are so many different feelings and, and issues and that um, the judge and the, and the attorneys for both sides have to make sure are not going to be biased or try, they can't make sure 100%, but they try to weed out the jurors who they think are going to be against them, you know, each side. And um, there are so many issues, guns, uh, Islam, radical Islamist terrorism, living, whether you know somebody who was uh, killed or injured in the attack, whether you're a friend of a friend or, you know, a relative or um, whether you're, what you feel about gay people. I mean, you know, just so many emotional issues. And um, so it's going to be really hard to narrow down the pool of jurors to ones that both sides can agree on. So that's what they have begun. But just to give you a little preview, um, we know that uh, Nora Solomon went with her husband to scout locations, uh, the Pulse nightclub, an area around Disneyland, uh, that she went with him to a gun range. Uh, there are texts between the two of them that are incriminating. There certainly, um, what I, you know, as a psychiatrist, what I think about most is the pillow talk that went on uh, that night. You know, you're going to tell me that Omar, who was so passionate, crazed, really, about uh, perpetrating this attack to support ISIS, that, you know, that was what he was thinking about night and day. And so clearly, um, he and and since we know she did go with him scouting and so on, um, it, it really wasn't a secret. So of course he would have been talking to her when they were laying on pillows and, and other times. And in fact, one of the things that I think is, is particularly incriminating is um, that he took out money from a bank not long before, right before, in fact, the shooting, and um, bought her jewelry, expensive jewelry. Now, come on. You know, he didn't have a ton of money. He was a security guard, and he took out the majority of it to buy her this expensive jewelry. So that wasn't a clue that, uh, you know, that, uh, well, whether it was that he was giving it to her um, as a goodbye present, as a, um, maybe to, to have something that she could use if she, if she sold it to support her son, their son. Uh, they had a three-year-old son when he shot up the nightclub. Um, whether it was an, I'm sorry, I'm going to leave you. You know, it, it could have meant a hundred different things. Could have been to just buy her silence. Although clearly he didn't really want silence because in these 911 calls that he made while he was shooting, while he was inside the nightclub, um, he wanted to be known for doing this on behalf of ISIS. So um, I, I don't, really think it was to buy her silence per se since he wanted although apparently he didn't really want her to or he didn't instruct her to shoot it to shout it to the rooftops because um because she well 
because she hasn't been doing that. Well, she's been going back and forth. And that's one of the things that they have against her. She actually, in the hours while he was still in the nightclub and the shootout was going on, the police went to her apartment where she was supposedly sleeping uh, and her son was in the apartment. And um, although she said in her, one of the parts of her confession, she said, I knew he was going to Orlando to attack. So how she could sleep while that was happening, I don't know. Um, but, you know, the main defense that, the, that she's going to have is that, um, that she was an abused woman. And that, yes, you know, to the extent that she did know these things and did go with him to scout out locations and so on, it was only because she was an abused woman. And she was afraid of him. Now, I totally believe that she was an abused woman, but that does not explain uh, why she said nothing uh, while after he left that day and she knew that he was going to Orlando to attack. Uh, at that point, there was no reason why she couldn't have called the police and warned them or, call, or even called the Pulse nightclub and warned them that there was going to be an attack. She didn't even have to say that it was her husband. So that is not really holding very much water. And I hope that the jury is going to see through it. I mean, yes, will they feel sympathetic for her, for being an abused woman? Yes. But um, <laughs> I don't think that that sympathy is going to extend to all of this carnage. Uh, let's Let's see, um, I want to talk about, well, first of all, her, her statement. So while I'm starting to say, while, uh, they, while the shooting was going on, they went to her house and um, they, they uh, brought her down, they contacted, the police contacted the FBI, they brought her down to the station, she started being interrogated. And um, ultimately, although her story changed many times, in the end, she initialed and signed a 12-page statement saying that she knew he was going to attack the club when he left their home. And um, she also said that she knew that he was looking at the website for the club and that he told her, this is my target. What more did he have? It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like Nicholas Cruz in the Parkland high school shooting. I mean, how much more do these people have to do? Um, how many more flags, red flags, do they have to wave? But um, he, he bought her silence at least to a point with that jewelry, is my opinion. Not necessarily for afterwards, but uh, to get her to not, to not screw up his plans. Um, so now her attorneys are going to argue that this confession was coerced because she was there for hours and hours of interrogation. And here's, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that they have, that her defense team has retained a psychologist to um, testify on her behalf. And, you know, it just really pisses me off, <laughs> to be frank, that, um, that a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but a mental health professional 
would, I mean, yes, everybody is entitled to a fair trial, but let me tell you what he's going to say and how he can say this, how, I'm assuming it's a he, how he's going to say this with a straight face, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I would love to be on the other side to be a, um, to be a, um, uh, an opposing uh, uh, expert witness to rebut what he's this thin <laughs> these thin arguments thin statements uh, on her behalf so um she told a psychologist that she signed these statements this confession only quote so she could be allowed to go home unquote you know she was saying that she wanted to go home to her child of course i'm not sure I'm not sure where the child was at that point, but wherever I'm, you know, I mean, he was the, with the police. Wherever he was, she wanted to she she wanted to take her child and go home. Um, but you know, yes, it's understandable that she would want to get out of there in the middle of the night, especially you know, to be with her child. But um, but still, you know, to, to sign a 12-page confession. She also says that authorities threatened her during the questioning. She said they told her that her son would be taken from her and raised in a Christian home. But a federal judge has ruled that not credible. I mean, that's, you know, um, I mean, I guess it's certainly possible, but uh, it just seems too trumped up, you know, too fake. Um, these, this psychologist, also said that uh, he examined her mental state and described her as suffer suffering from a, quote, significant mental disorder along with post-traumatic stress disorder that was supposedly caused by alleged physical and mental abuse by her husband. Now, it is true that women who are victims of domestic violence do often suffer PTSD. However, that does not explain um, what she did, you know, why she went along with him, nor does it sufficiently explain why she didn't warn anybody after he left the home. Then um, she filled out what they're calling a danger assessment form about her husband. And, um, you know, I, in regard to her, the domestic violence, and she said that Mateen, Omar Mateen, her husband, threatened to kill her raped her, choked her, and beat her while she was pregnant with their son. Now, it is true that men who are uh, perpetrators of domestic violence do uh, become more violent when the woman is pregnant because they are outraged at, um, they feel an abandonment, you know, which really the reason why they become uh, perpetrators of domestic violence to begin with have to do with feeling abandoned by their mothers growing up so when they're the woman who they're abusing becomes pregnant it feels like the same abandonment that now um she is uh, paying attention to her son as opposed to paying attention to him so it it triggers these memories these painful memories of abandonment so that part is true so this psychologist is saying that because she has these various mental disorders, it's difficult for her to handle stress and that that's what caused her false confession. Really.
not 12 hours, not 12 pages worth, and not all the details in 12 pages. I mean, if you're that um, disabled, so to speak, or you're that stressed out that you can't um, concentrate or form, be coherent, um, you can't come up <laughs> with 12 pages of confession. You know, you might sit there in sort of a trance, you might become catatonic, um, you might say meaningless things, put meaningless words together, but not to put 12 pages together. So now, um, the prosecutors, in order to convict, have, her, have the jury convict her, they have to prove not only that she knew about her husband's planned attack, but that she intentionally associated with or contributed to it. And uh, they are, in order to do this, which it certainly seems like she did, because as I was saying, she went with him to, uh, to scout out places and so on, and went with him to the gun range, and went with him to buy the jewelry. Um, and, and covered for him that night. Um, so now what the prosecutors are relying on are two main points. First of all, the statement she made, the confession to the FBI, and also in text messages. And the second part, that she actually went with him, as I was saying, to case other locations and to a gun range uh, before the shooting. So, I mean, it's not like she didn't know what they were doing, and in a sense, by going with him, she was helping him. Um, now, the, the uh, I was already, I already mentioned what the defense is going to do. So, um, let me tell you about some of the, some of the uh, jurors. This is kind of, Well, first of all, here, let me go back to um, the, these text messages that I mentioned. The, um, she sent on text, in a text message um, that she sent on June 11th at 6 p.m., which was eight hours before the massacre, she sent a text message in which she referenced a, a friend of Mateen's that um, she called, that they called actually Nima. And she said in her text message, if your mom calls, say Nemo invited you out and Nor wants to stay home. And she asked where you were. XOXO, love you. So apparently the mother called um, Nor, called the wife, and invited them to dinner. And, um, and, and she gave her that story about him being with Nemo, apparently, um, and wanted, wanted him to give her the same story, and she said that she wanted to stay home and so on. So now, um, so this is proving that she knew, again, this is another proof that she knew his plans and that she was creating a cover story in case... Uh, he, his mother called and invited him over for dinner. Now, um, this guy Nemo, and that's not his, that's not necessarily his real name, or certainly not his full name, um, he told federal agents that Omar Mateen often cheated on his wife. Gee, what a surprise. 
Uh, with women he met online, and by the way, that's how he met her. And he would tell uh, <coughs> her that he was hanging out with Nemo during these uh, affairs. So, um, so now her defense attorney is making this argument, which makes no sense to me. He's saying that the text suggests that Omar Mateen lied to his wife again when leaving to attack Pulse using the same lie. But then um, that she wouldn't have had to say, um, she wouldn't have had to make this up to tell his mother. I mean, this is just very confusing and doesn't make any sense. Uh, she's also being accused of deleting text messages. That wasn't the only text message that she sent. So, um, so when they knocked on her door in these early morning hours, while Mateen was still alive inside the nightclub, and they took her to an officer's unmarked car where they sat with the doors open until the FBI came. And um, now, unfortunately, the investigators, when they were investigating her, questioning her, they wrote down notes. They didn't make audio or video recordings. Now, I, that, I mean, uh, what, another, another example of the FBI um, failing. And by the way, in case you don't remember or never knew, uh, the FBI had Omar Mateen on their watch list before this ever happened. Um, he had been reported, and, and then they stopped watching him. I mean, doesn't that sound familiar? This has happened with numerous terrorists, where these people have come across uh, to the attention of authorities, and the authorities do some big kind of investigation and then um, don't keep following them up. And it's the same thing, although they did even less, <laughs> with uh, Nicholas Cruz and, and, and the Parkland shooting. Um, so, so then there was this, um, the, Nora, the wife, eventually gave three separate and conflicting statements to an FBI agent who first claimed that she didn't know anything about her husband's clan, plans, but then she changed her story. And she said, quote, I knew on Saturday when Omar left the house at about 5 p.m., just look at that, 5 p.m., that this was the time that he was going to do something bad. I think that this is going to be the key point or one of the key points that the jury is going to find um, really horrendous, you know, really um, just egregious that um, all that time that she knew that she could have, as I said, called, even called just the Pulse nightclub, called the police. She didn't even have to give her name, her husband's name, and she could have saved all those lies. I think that's going to be a really key point that is just going to be impossible for, if, or certainly very hard for the jury to accept and to forgive her for. Uh, to give her a sentence less than life in federal prison. So, um, so again, I knew on Saturday when Omar left the house at about 5 p.m. that this was the time that he was going to do something bad. I knew this because of the way he left and took the gun and backpack with ammunition to see Nemo. 
I knew later when I could not get a hold of him that my fears had come true and he did what he said he was going to do. I was in denial and I could not believe that the father of my child was going to hurt other people. Really, after all the time that they spent scouting locations, that she saw him watching ISIS videos, went to the gun range, all of that, and she still can't believe that he's going to do it, and she saw him go out with a backpack and ammunition and a gun. Excuse me? This is not a dumb woman. She has, um, she was, she was born in, in um, California, and she has gone to school. She has some education. So, um, you know, this was, uh, you can't, I mean, yes, she was abused, but certainly she knew what a gun looked like and ammunition, and he had been planning this. So it, it's hard to buy that she really, you know, was in that much denial. So, um, as I was saying, they are going to be allowed, the prosecutors, to show some security camera and, and body camera footage from inside the club. So it's not just going to be pictures, it's going to be video. And um, to prove that he did carry out the killings on behalf of the Islamic State. Now, the defense tried to exclude this, of course, because it's such emotional um, evidence but the district court, U.S. District Court, Judge Paul G. Byron, ruled that it was relevant because it showed how Omar Mateen conducted the attack, which um, matched uh, his wife's statements to the FBI, at least, <laughs> at least some of her statements, <laughs> the ones that didn't disagree with the other ones, or did disagree. Um, now, you know, in the past, in case you're wondering about other past spouses, um, if you think about uh, the uh, woman who was married to Sarnaev, um, who he and his brother Zokar, Sar well, the two Sarnaev brothers, Tamerlan and Zokar, were the terrorists who set off two bombs near the Boston Marathon finish line in 2013. And um, his, and that killed two women and, eight, and an eight-year-old boy. And Hammerlin, the older brother, was killed in a shootout with police, but Zokar was convicted and sentenced to death. So the wife of Sarnaev um, was questioned, but she, she was questioned for hours, but never charged. And um, they said, I don't know that I believe this quite frankly, but they said she knew nothing about it. She genuinely knew nothing about it until the police told her and she saw it on TV. I mean, again, I, I, you know, you cannot be married to someone. I mean, he used to watch, he used to watch ISIS videos and his brother was living with them or came over and they used to watch ISIS videos. I mean, yes, watching ISIS videos does not mean that you're going to go to the finish line of the Boston Marathon specifically and put bombs, but still. <laughs> Uh, she knew that something was up, so uh, I think that something more should have been done. And it's interesting, I mean, I, I don't know that they can go back at this point and do something, but if Nora Salman gets life in prison, um, it would be interesting to see if they would try to reopen the case of the wife of Sarnaev. Then, of course, we also have more recently the wife of Stephen, well, no, she was a girlfriend, the girlfriend of Stephen Paddock, who, of course, was the Las Vegas shooter, 
who killed 58 people at the Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas on October 1st before he killed himself. So far, prosecutors haven't filed charges against her, Mary Lou Danley. And now if she, <laughs> boy, if there's someone who know, knew something, knows something, it is Mary Lou Danley. And I am just waiting for that shoe to drop and um, for her to be charged with also possibly aiding and abetting, although it hasn't been proven yet that it's related to terrorism per se, the 9-11 type terrorists, although I'm still holding on to that. I, have not, uh, I am not convinced that it wasn't related to uh, radical Islamist terrorism. But anyhow, so, so far those two women have not been charged. Now, it's not clear whether Salman is going to uh, uh, take you know, take the stand or not in, in defense of herself. Uh, that pro she probably won't decide that until the trial has been going on for a while. But um, there, I promised I would give you some examples of what's been going on with the jury selection. So there is a, um, the defense attorneys, the wife's attorneys, uh, raise concern about a potential juror who wrote on a questionnaire that he did not, quote, approve of Islam. Now, when this man was asked about this in court, he said he meant to indicate that he didn't approve of religious extremists. And this same guy said that he had a daughter whose friend died in the Pulse massacre. Um, yet, the juror said, he could fairly judge the case. Now, if I were Salman's attorneys, the wife's attorneys, I would be jumping up and down, as they may well have done, to not have him be in the jury. I mean, what more do you, do you need? You know, yet he sort of backpedaled to say that he didn't mean that he um, didn't approve of Islam. He meant he didn't approve of his religious extremists. But really, you know, that seems like a lot of backpedaling, and, and maybe what he first wrote was true. Also, even without that, having a daughter whose friend died in the Pulse Massacre, I mean, come on, that man will at least, you know, I believe that perhaps he really wants to try to judge the uh, case fairly, or he wants to be on this, on this high-profile jury where perhaps afterwards he can sell his story or be, be interviewed by the media. You know, all of that stuff goes on these days. And in any case, the U.S. District Judge, Paul Byron, didn't remove him from the jury pool. So he said, the judge said, that the man was, quote, as clear as I think one could be that he would be impartial. Now, you know, sometimes judges and attorneys do not put enough thought into the fact that these people may be saying these things and may even think that they mean these things, that he could judge the case fairly, but unconsciously that is what is directing uh, the decisions of jurors. Um, what else? There was another juror who was questioned. Um, he was, uh, he attends the University of Central Florida, and he's a software engineering intern. And he said that he couldn't put aside his feelings about 9-11, the 9-11 terror attacks. 
And when he was saying all of this, um, both the wife and her attorney began writing, scribbling. I'm sure, I'm sure what they were thinking, no, no, we have to make sure he doesn't uh, get on. And in fact, this juror was um, sent home. There were, um, there was a, there, there have been some protesters, um, at least one, but I'm sure there's going to be more. I'm surprised that there really has so far have been reports only about one. Um, it was a man who was holding up a sign asking for the wife's execution. The sign said, fry her till she has no pulse. Well, we know how he feels, and he is a gay activist, and he is, understandably, and he lives nearby, and he's understandably, well, actually, not that nearby. He, he drove a long way to come there and um, with that sign. I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, these, these victims and their families um, are, are still heartbroken, of course. And... Um, well, I think this is all that I'm going to actually have time to talk about today. You can bet I will be doing more podcasts about this trial because, as I said, as a psychiatric expert witness and as the terrorist therapist, I mean, this is just combining my two loves, the two things that I feel passionate about. I don't mean that I love uh, terrorism, but I love seeing people punished seeing terrorists or wives of terrorists who uh, did aid and abet, punished. And so that is why I think this is super important. And, you know, I, I pay attention to how much this is going to be in the news because the um, mainstream media has a tendency uh, to... <laughs> to have these stories not last very long, stories about terrorism not last very long. As a good example, a Halloween terrorist was in the headlines for about three days. You know, the man who, who ran, um, drove his truck into uh, people, pedestrians and bicyclists and so on, killed and injured people, and at near ground zero, that was super important. And um, that got about three days of major headlines. So this trial, the wife's trial, is going to go on. It's, it's, uh, there are varying estimates of how long, but certainly weeks and if not months. And um, so I will have a chance to analyze this uh, week by week for you and put in my two cents. For now, <laughs> I, will, um, I will leave you. I want to give you my website again, um, remind you to go to my website to look for more things about terrorism. It's www.terroristtherapist.com. And um, my book, which is particularly needed, you know, as this is happening, of course, it's, it's triggering PTSD in the people who were the victims, the families, and people in Orlando, people in Florida, and actually people all over the U.S. who still have thoughts, and I believe it's everybody actually who was, who was here during the time of 
that that is in our unconscious, never left us. And so our PTSD, to the extent that we have it, uh, is being triggered by this too, by this trial, by this reminder of terror attacks. So um, children will be asking questions when they see and hear this in the news. And um, the, what you can turn to if you're a parent or a teacher or a therapist, um, I recommend that you talk to them about this. And of course, uh, my book is the tool that you need to do it. The book is called Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. And you can get that in brick and mortar bookstores. You can get it online from Barnes & Noble and so on. And you can get it from my publisher's website, which is www.terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist on Renegade Radio.